Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we are rolling live for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today on the show, I have the poetic human himself, John Krotek. John is the author of a couple of books, Fractals and Freedom Punch, a couple of compilations of his poetry, uh, which are international bestsellers. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Mark. Thank you for that nice little introduction and uh, thrilled to be here and humbled too. So it's great and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Well, I've got so many questions for you, John. Uh, First, let's talk about the link between leadership and poetry. That's Those are odd bedfellows, those two. So what is the link there between being poetic and leadership? It's kind of a great question. Thank you, Mark. It's kind of, it is it is interesting. You know, the poetic human is not necessarily about prose and ballads, although there's, there's a benefit to those types of um, things. You know, I've been writing poetry since I was in junior high school. Uh, but poetry is a, is a direct expression of somebody's thoughts and feelings. And, I mean, you can read poetry from 4,000 years ago. And, uh, and even before that, throughout all of history, there's been poets in all different countries, men and women, throughout the ages. But, but because it's such a raw expression, it's, it, it's exactly its leadership uh, with with great courage and bravery, because any any time that you can basically express yourself to the world, your thoughts and feelings, it's the ultimate warrior. Because we we tend to hide things, and poets, by definition, tend to not hide things. Some of it's metaphor, you know, analogies. Some of it's direct feelings, but but it's leadership in, in its highest form. Poetic human is. Somebody who knows their purpose, knows who they are, they execute a plan to live their life to the fullest, and they do it in a way with great integrity and with core value sets that, uh, that quite honestly, are missing today. Poetry and folk music, for it to be any good, people have to crack open their chest and be completely vulnerable. If uh, people are writing folk music or poetry, which are kissing cousins, really, um, and if they're just using their head and they're trying to do something that's a catchy tune, it, it never hits hard. Like, it never has that connection to people. And the common denominator there is vulnerability. So what I'm hearing you say is that for a leader to be a truly great leader, not just a manager, uh, they have to be a human being and be transparent and be um, truly authentic, not uh, presenting a particular image or playing a role to be their true authentic selves. Is, is that uh, where you're going with that? Mark, you're spot on, brother. 
Uh, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about vulnerability. We're talking about uh, the courage and the bravery to bear your soul to the world. And it may not just be with poetry. It's anytime anybody writes anything, even if it's an editorial, you know, a form of writing where you expose yourself. Um, I think what we're what we're dealing with now in the world environment um, is we're dealing with uh, decades and centuries of leadership models that I personally believe are broken, and there it's because people lead people in leadership positions are are not showing their true selves. There's a motive, there's an agenda behind it, and the longer we go the more chance there is that those agendas or those motives will be uh, revealed. How much of it? Tell the truth. Oh, go ahead. When you tell the truth, if it's revealed, then whatever comes your way, you're not leading people on through deception, I guess. How much of it do you think is ego as a barrier? Because we get um, so happy with these titles of CEO, CFO, oh, I'm in the C-suite, or I'm climbing the corporate ladder, and uh, people are so happy w- for you when you get this title, or, or they're jealous, and either way, ego is getting engaged. And so often, people climb these corporate ladders for the title, uh, for a sense of public acknowledgement it's like hey look at me i'm i'm somebody i'm doing something and uh but the titles are are so empty uh through being truly authentic that titles don't matter it's just a role that you're playing it's how you play that role that matters so much more than the title itself you know mark i like the way you say you know Ego is a barrier because, again, you're spot on. The ego is a huge barrier for people to to live their lives with with integrity. Um, some other barriers would be money, you know, greed. Money's not a bad thing, but when it when it when when it gets to the greed, you got to kind of wonder about it. But also power and control. You know, we were working on a project uh, a couple years back called Task Force Zen. And the and the, the moniker was healing without labels. So you know when you when you slap a CEO label on somebody, um, not everybody. There's a lot, but when you slap that label, people have a tendency to live up to that label. If you slap the label human, and you live up to being a human, then you're about as authentic as you can be. Because I don't think people, for the most part. I, or I think people, for the most part, generally want the same things out of life. There has to be a person in a leadership position, and those people need to be, they need to realize that the only way to do that is with integrity. That's the only way. If you lead without integrity, integrity, then eventually that model is going to break down. You're going to lose followers. You're going to get found out. You're going to get exposed. And then, then what do you have? You have a mess. You have maybe an organization or a family or a country that is in dire straits because you, as the leader, did not live your life with integrity. It seems like there's a shift going on right now, John. I wonder if you feel it as well. I feel a shift away from ego, away from the titles and the surface. Uh, I call it the California mentality, where everything is image and superficial. You know, um, people are moving away from 
things that don't really matter. And I think they're starting to get be more heart-centered and starting to move towards things that do matter and are walking away from the superficial image. It feels like that's a trend right now. Have you been seeing anything like that or does that resonate with you? That's a great point and it does resonate. You know, more and more of the conversations that I have with people are saying the same thing. I think that this global pandemic um, gave us gave everybody everywhere a great opportunity to 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 stop to just take a collective breath. And I think people, especially in the Western world, probably everywhere there's material things. I think people had an opportunity to realize what was more important was each other, was family, was the the road that they lived on. Maybe they were finally able to talk to their neighbors. But I think that 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 is happening. I think people are finally realizing that you're not going to find true happiness. No disrespect to Lamborghini and they're they're fast (laughs) and they're sleek and they're sexy. Yeah, they are. And how long is that going to last? Yeah. You know, you can drive up and down the Autobahn a few times and then the thrill is gone. Remember the song, The Thrill is Gone, B.B. King? So the thrill is gone from the materialistic. And this is a rhetorical statement, but I, th- I think the thrill is gone. I think people are looking inside now. And if we don't rely on each other, then then again, what do we have, Mark? I agree with you. And I mean, there's more than one reason somebody has a Lamborghini or Ferrari. Some people just because they can, but it's usually image and status. You know, it's like, look at me, I'm cool because they externalize their self-worth. And for people to say, look, this, this is a status symbol. If I have the cool car, it means I'm a cool person. If I have the cool car, it means that I have, I am better than other people because I have better stuff. And... (laughs) And that's yeah. just all ego and it's superficial and it's never fulfilling. And the the exact same people can be on their fourth marriage, <laughs> facing bankruptcy uh, and be plagued with suicidal thoughts. You know, it, it just, it does not fill the cup. The more we try to fill our cup with toys and stuff and status and, and labels it's never going to fill the cup. That is always has to be an internal process. It has to be something that, that matters. And no, there's nothing wrong with having a Lamborghini or Ferrari or a status. I've had some pretty cool titles in my, over the years. Um, you know, felt kind of neat to have those big titles, but um, they don't matter. The only thing that matters is who you are as a human being when you're performing those roles, when you're filling the boots of that title when you're performing those tasks, the integrity that you have as human is all that really matters. No, you're right, Mark. I got a little quick metaphor here for 12 years. I climbed high mountains in the Andes in South America. And I was the American climber. You know, I owned a backpacking store and and I, and I had all the hardcore gear, right? So I go down, I lead a team, and I go down to Argentina to, cl- to climb Aconcagua, one of the seven summits. And I show up with all my gear. And a couple of days before we left to go to the mountain, the mountain guide said, we're going to have an equipment shakedown. We're going to see what you brought, and we're going to leave things back in Mendoza that we don't need. So they're going through my stuff, and they're, they're picking it up. You don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this. 
you need this, you don't need this, you don't need this, you don't need you need this, you need this. And 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 but when when they were all over, I'm sitting there scratching my head and I'm going, Holy cow, they got like ten pounds of gear that I know that I need. And they told me, You don't need it. And so I left it in a duffel bag in Mendoza. We went to the mountain and found out that they were correct. I didn't need all that stuff. All the the extra T-shirts and the extra long underwear and the extra this and the extra that. It was all material things that if I had to carry those on the mountain, I could have died up there just because of all the extra weight. But the point is, is when we when we when we get what you just said, when we get when we get down to the bare facts of living this life, we can get by with a lot less than when our ego tells us we need to have. And if we're trying to keep up with the Joneses then then we're just going to become a Joneses. And, and, and I, I like to be a Crow Tech. I don't want to be a Jones. I want to be me, which means that I have to oh, get over that ego that the Jones Joneses next door have that Lamborghini. No judgment on my part, but I know I don't need a Lamborghini to live my life to the fullest. It's just me personally. It's such an interesting analogy in the crossover. The um, the ego is those labels. It's those titles that we are, are seeking out and or the status symbol belongings that we have, whether it be the size of our house or the neighborhood we live in or, or having a second or third house or whatever it is. That is all a burden of extra stuff you don't need. We think we need it, but it's actually a burden. So it's hurting you and weighing you down more than it's helping you. It is such a beautiful uh, uh, analogy to do exactly what you just said for for climbing gear. I think I need this. I think it's going to help me. I think it's going to get me up that mountain. No, it's going to make it getting up that mountain tougher, not easier. It's going to be weighing you down. That is a really interesting analogy because that is what the ego does. I, I think I need that. Nope, that's ex- the thing you think you need is exactly what's holding you back. It's the same with trauma recovery in general. Uh, I've often said that the victim mentality is the greatest barrier to to growing and to moving forward, which it is, but the victim mentality is all a part of ego because it's attachment to a label, which is ego. So it's the to to drill down a bit deeper. It's actually the ego is the number one barrier to anything that you want to achieve that matters. And of course, recovering from trauma injuries is about as important as it gets because that's your quality of life. There, you know, that's the difference between uh, being plagued with suicidal thoughts and living a, a full and rich life. So, if you don't uh, put put that ego aside. It's life's going to suck. <laughs> it's going to suck hard. And no, no. And it is. And you know what? You're so correct, Mark. And, and, and guess what? It's okay. If you have a bad day, it's okay. If you make a mistake, you know, one of the biggest things that, 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 that I had to get over was the, what I called the back to square one myth. And I remember like to use an example, let's just say it's new year's and we have a, um, we make our resolutions and we start making little tick marks in our journal. Oh, one, two, three, four. And on day five, you do the thing that you didn't want to do. 
So the next day, it's day one again, right? Well, I changed it around. What I said that for me personally, the next day was day five. I had five days of victory. So I started out on day five, and then I'd get up to day 17, and I'd make another mistake, and and the old John would be back to square one again. That whole back to square one myth overrides all the victories that we've had. And so every year, year after year, we're starting out with these resolutions and and we're counting our our defeats on square one. No. Start the same number, but you had all those days of victory. That Those things we have been fighting, those belief systems that have been drilled into us since childhood, in all cultures, they've all got these sayings. If we can find other ways to live our life than by the mantras of others, then I think we stand a chance. And so I'll tell you right now, I'm on day 635. I've got 635 days of victory of something that I wanted to change in my personality and in my behavior 635 days ago. There's mistakes in there. But guess what, Mark? I'm not back on square one. I'm a winner. I'm victorious. Tomorrow will be day 636. And next time when you call me up, I might be on 639. And it could be two weeks later. But I still have all those days of victories. So I'm not going to live by the mantras that hold people back. That square one mantra held me back most of my life. I was always on square one, not anymore. And it took overcoming ego in that process. Being kind to ourselves is always a challenge. And one of the, a book that I've been working on is how to overcome your ego. It's (laughs) called ego, the devil that you know. And the first title. The, the first step is to first understand who you are and that you're not your ego. Your ego is a part of your life, but it is not who you are. And going from there, one of the things that you had written that I had read, it, talking about the disconnect between heart and mind, and that is interesting to me. So for yourself, what is the difference between heart and mind? What are they? How would you define them? And... What is the importance of connection? The importance of a connection, and what is the downside of like? What is the impact of disconnection between heart and mind? Great question. Um, I go to back to the human fetus, and the first things to really form in the human fetus, and this is biologic, is the the heart and the lungs. And the brain is one of the last things to form. Okay. So it's there first. The heart is there first. And the breath of life is there first. The brain comes in after. The brain is something that forms throughout our entire lives. It's our critical thinking. It's our logic. It's our reason. The heart, I think, is your spirit. And how the spirit is defined is... Sometimes it's undefinable. Sometimes it's just a feeling that we get. You know, some people uh, say that uh, empathy is a good thing, and empathy is a good thing. But if we are too empathetic, 
we can run into problems in our own lives. You know, if we're just completely going with the heart and we're not logically thinking about something like paying our bills, I'm so empathetic for that group. I've decided I'm not going to work on this side to help those people. And what happens? You don't get the next paycheck. You can't pay your electric bill. So I think there's always a, a balance that we have to find each of us personally. We have to identify who we are. You said it just a second ago, a couple minutes ago. We have to believe in something greater than ourselves. Uh, whatever your belief system is, I think it's important to you, to people as, as, as a person. And then I think we have to understand that everything we do in our lives is a process. But it all has to be integrated with balance. If we're being too logical all the time and we have no passion and no heart, then we live by the numbers. And the numbers makes for a bland, dull life. If we're too passionate and all we have is heart, you know, maybe we need to all buy yurts and live out on the desert. Not a bad thing, but but what are we really giving back? So I think that we have to 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 understand the balance between a passionate, emotional side of ourselves and a logical, reasonable side of ourselves. And we have to, there's a lot of trial and error there, but we have to somehow integrate it in a balanced way. And there was a word, I can't pronounce it. It's a Hopi Indian, Native American Indian word. Let me see. I might botch it. It's called Kwana Squatsi. Kwana Squatsi. There was a... Uh, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, there was a, there was a um, documentary movie out. I think it was in the early 80s called Kwana Squatsi. And basically, it's a word that means out of balance. And... The movie starts out, I'm not going to give it all away, the documentary starts out with pictures of the earth and all the beautiful things that the earth has to offer, the oceans and the mountains and the plants. And then what happens is there's a, there's a shift in that documentary that shows technology and advancements, and, and it shows human beings how they shifted from a sense of community and belonging to a sense of just being a number and just going to and fro shows pictures of airports and escalators and shopping malls and cars and highways. And the name of the movie is Quantasquatsi life out of balance. And I think the message was humankind needs to find balance somewhere. And how we do that is with each individual, you know, think about this, Mark, let's say you and I want to save um, energy. So we live in the same neighborhood and you and me shut our light bulbs off, right? We turn the lights off earlier because we know we're just wasting power. You know, two guys doing it, it's not going to make a huge dent, right? But imagine if three people did it and then four people did it, then 10 people did it, then 12. And then, and then it just, you know, grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Think how much energy we could save. So if each individual human being on the planet finds their own sense of balance, then we create a global aura of balance. And I think we're living in a world that's out of balance. Well, I think there is a global consciousness. I really do. Um, 
sometimes you have an idea, then all of a sudden you see on TV, oh, <laughs> there's the invention that I just uh, that I thought of like last year, and there it is uh, actually being sold. It's like everybody has the same idea at the at the same time. I believe that's part of the global consciousness, which is actually. I don't know if I would say verified, but it is certainly backed up by the work done in quantum physics, uh, the butterfly effect, things like that. Like everything is interconnected. I was just listening to a First Nations speaker at a college convocation a month ago, and he was saying the biggest problem, the most important thing is for everybody to understand that we are all one people and we only have one world. You know, we are not separate from each other. We're not separate from each other. We're not separate from this earth. We are all intertwined. And this illusion that we are different people, um, that's the problem. Everything from uh, people who are drug addicts, for for an example. I was thinking about uh, Hunter Biden this morning and how anybody who doesn't uh, like the Biden family is attacking Hunter Biden calling him a crackhead and whatnot. It's like, oh, hang on, hang on, slow down. First of all, if you are abusing hard drugs like that, it's for a reason. You're compensating for some childhood trauma. So what the hell happened to this guy when he was a kid? That's what I see when I see these uh, Hunter Biden video clips of uh, the train wreck of a, a life that he's had. What the hell happened to him as a kid? You know, I go straight to compassion and, and trying to understand instead of labeling somebody as a crackhead or an addict or, or whatever diminutive label there, there might be. Because we're all one people <laughs> and it is all one world. Uh, so when we see somebody who's clearly struggling like that, to go to a place of curiosity and compassion as opposed to judgment and labels. Uh, but I, I feel the world shifting away from the, that judgment and labels to the curiosity and compassion. At least I hope so. I don't know if you have the same sense or not. You know, I get bits and pieces of it. You know, I always say that whenever you're pointing the finger at somebody, and you've heard this, there's four pointing back. Mm-hmm. So I have a tendency to really keep myself in check before I pass judgment on anybody. And I think that judgment itself is it is a very slippery slope because issues like Hunter Biden, you know, God bless him. He, whatever he's going through is not good. And I think that it, it's, it's more complex. I think that it's more complex. I think there's a lot of issues at play with Hunter Biden. I, I, yeah, he's obviously in pain. He's obviously been through a lot of trauma, but I also come back to the C word and the C word it's called choices. I I was raped. It was about 90 seconds. It was in the summer between the third and fourth grade. I won't go into vivid detail. In fact, the book that I'm writing basically has two paragraphs. It's very graphic. And then that's all I talk about it. That 90 seconds um, caused me a whole lot of problems throughout my whole life. And what I, you know, drinking and drugging and womanizing and all kinds of different things that always – always a hard charger and then always finding a way to self-sabotage and then keeping it hidden, a dark, dirty secret hidden for four decades. But what I found is that I had to, I had to start making better choices. I couldn't rely on other people. I, I found that I had to do it on my own. 
which is pretty much what most of us have to do. Some need more help than others. I'm, I'm a firm believer in getting an expert to help whatever road you're on. If you need an expert, find one. But I think that we have a tendency, and again, I don't know the reasons why Hunter Biden, we're using him as an example, made some of the decisions that he made. But I would say that some of those decisions are probably more than just the trauma he went through. Some of those barriers that we talked about, money, maybe control, made a lot of decisions that are being questioned right now by a lot of people. But you know what? I don't pass judgment on them. As far as a global consciousness goes, there's some truth to that. You know, if the tribe's all on, we used to say in the army, one mind, one mission. And if somebody was slipping up, we were only as good as the, the, the least best soldier. If somebody was slipping up, then we had a harder chance of accomplishing the mission. And it's the same thing with humankind. If we don't pick up the people that are straggling and hurting, then we're not we're not integral ourselves. Because if we truly care about humanity, we're going to help those that are that are that are struggling. And I got to tell you, Mark, there were some people that didn't have to on my own healing journey, but they were there when I needed them the most. And when I was in the darkest periods of my life, I found out firsthand who was in my corner and who wasn't. A lot of people who I thought were my friends dispersed. And sometimes the people that you least expect will surprise you. I wish Hunter well. I just hope that he finds whatever he needs to overcome the traumas that he's dealing with. Um, I certainly wouldn't want my dirty laundry out in the public realm. Well, we don't, we don't, uh, you talk about choices and I am always a little bit hesitant to use words like that when it comes to trauma, because nobody chooses the trauma. Um, We don't necessarily choose how to deal with it either. I mean, people don't choose drug addiction consciously because choice implies informed consent. Um, It's generally done out of, desperation don't know what else to do uh, you stumble across it you try it uh, trauma survivors are very often risk takers you know the hard charger like you're talking about and are I, I certainly was and the adult that we are is usually a reflection of the child that we were so we don't choose the um, the trauma and when we're dealing with it, when we're looking for ways to, to medicate, either consciously or unconsciously, we just grasp at straws. Like when you're drowning, you're not thinking a lot about anything but getting that next breath of air. And you'd suck off a tailpipe if, if that was the only air that, uh, that was offered to you. You know, you'll, you'll breathe whatever, whatever air happens to be there. Uh, and people like, Hunter and, and so many others, they, they, they take what they can get as far as um, medication, in this case, hard drugs and uh, prostitution and whatnot. Those are all things that I understand, although I was never a hard drug guy myself, but like yourself, um, and I'm glad that you used the word raped because in, on your uh, bio it says sexually assaulted. I think it's better to use the words that are more accurate 
you were raped when you were nine. Uh, I was, and I've shared on the show before, I was molested from the age of seven to 12 and then raped when I was 17 by somebody else. And what that does to a, to a person in their adult life can be really, really significant. The risky behavior, uh, hypersexualization, etc. How did that, uh, looking back, how did um, s- sexual trauma as a child affect you and your adult life moving forward from that? Like, what, like, what, what was the impact? Well, a couple things. Um, have you ever read the book the, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts? No, Doctor Gabor Mate. No, not yet. But I'm a I'm a big Gabor fan for sure. Yeah, he was working at a Vancouver addiction drug addictions um, facility in Vancouver, and it was just one of the best books that I've ever read on post traumatic stress and trauma and overcoming it and the journeys back. And he's big time on uh, the word choice. But it's complex. It's not as easy as just making a choice like you choose to do this or choose not to do that. The The first thing, you know, if you ever check out the cover of my book, I've got a picture of my cute little face in the third grade with my little Cub Scout uniform on. And you can see a child there, uh, inquisitive, full of energy. You can tell all of that from a photograph. Then I, the fourth grade picture is a zombie. It's vacant. There's no smile. There's no energy. So the effect of what happened to me was immediate. Um, what I, you know, and who was I going to tell? Somehow in my mind, I internalized it, and I, and, I, and I thought to myself, because the person that did it said, there's no use telling anybody because they're not going to believe you, and then, and then they're going to think that you're gay. That's what he said to me. So... <laughs> Fears ran through me, you know, just a little third grader. But anyhow, so I didn't tell anybody. I internalized it. But I can remember starting to write. And I can remember one of my first poems was Why I Hate Being a Guy. And in a time in my life when I should have been worried about what kickball team I was going to be chosen for or studying for the next quiz in, 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 in English, I was concerned about my sexuality. I was concerned about um, things that children at that age should not be concerned with. You know, that's a fun time in life. And so I can remember hanging out with the guys because I was a guy. And I can remember the, the boys talking about stuff that I thought need not be talked about. Like, you know, the things they did to their girlfriends. Um, things like that. I, I, I felt... I felt like I was in a quandary and I, I was stuck in a, in a different world, you know, a world where I was hurting, but also a world that I was confused about the role of the male female um, interaction. I, um, I just thought guys were, cause it was a guy who did it right. I just thought my own gender I just thought they were confused and that came from a 90 second episode. And so I always thought that guys put their priorities. I was, I always wanted to be one of the guys, but I always felt like I wasn't one of the guys, you know, mentally I wasn't biologically I was, but mentally I just, I, I, there was, there was a split when that happened to me. There was 
and I'm sure it's different for everybody, Mark, as you know, but there was some kind of a slip and a split from this male mentality that the world was giving us. And so I always seemed to excel with the guys. I was always competitive, did sports. I was fairly intelligent. I always did well on my test. And at the same time, didn't feel like I was part of that group because I didn't trust guys, but I was a guy. So, so often, you know, so I guess what you're hearing here is like major confusion. Wasn't confused about my sexuality. I was confused about my male mentality. You know, how am I supposed to act? Because that's not how guys are supposed to act. Not the way I was raised. It it sounds like your subconscious conflated masculinity and, uh, and, and the trauma. And, 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 yeah. and to put them hand in hand. And I've often wondered if gender dysphoria isn't uh, sometimes a result of exactly that. You know, it's a, it's a good point because a lot of people that I, that I have met throughout my life, men and women who have had sexual issues, uh, often were the result through the experiences that they had faced coming along somewhere. In fact, hasn't it been said that most people that get into prostitution, most of those people have had severe sexual trauma in their early early adolescent stage. Um, trauma, as you know, it just doesn't take prisoners, and it happens to all of us. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a sexual thing. You can lose your dream job. You can become disfigured in an automobile accident. I, you can I lose all your money. Trauma could be characterized as anything that knocks you off center, anything that detaches you from being your authentic self. That's trauma. And that's the impact of trauma. Yeah, you're totally right, Mark. And you, you know, you've been doing this for a while. And I, I know that I've read statistics, you know, statistics can be slanted, but I've read where up to 70% of the world's population has been traumatized at least one time. But I would say it might even be higher because if you've lost a loved one, it can be a form of trauma. And we've all lost loved ones, but they also say that up to 35% of the humans on the planet have been traumatized multiple times. So if you just look at that in the larger scope, we have a global population uh, that's fractured in some sense. Well, we just uh, went through a pandemic that some people still think is going on. I think it's over, but um, that is a very, very traumatic event. Um, more for some than others. I mean, I was never scared or, or concerned, but a lot of people were and still are. Um, and PTSD is encoded in fear. So if you have extreme fear, uh, that is that has to be a component of PTSD because it has to be encoded in fear. So the the whole western world right now or any anybody that um their life was changed or altered uh that threw them off center and people were tested it was interesting there's still people wearing masks while they're driving their car alone for goodness sakes and when they're doing that i mean that's a fear response there's no logic going on um when emotion is high, rationale is low. So when you're engaged in fear, you simply don't have access to your frontal cortex. You can't think. doesn't matter what your IQ is. You could, be, uh, you could have three PhDs. But if you're operating in fear, 
you do not have access to your frontal cortex. So you can't access all that brain power. Uh, fear turns it right off. No, you're totally correct. I have a really good friend. His name is Nick Walenda, the great Walenda circus family from the Sarasota, Florida area. And he's the, he's the man that tight roped across Niagara Falls. He also tight roped across New York city and he did the grand Canyon. And we used to talk about, I used to say, Hey, Nick, how do you, how can you get up there on that cable with that balancing rod and walk 1,900 feet, you know, 5,000 feet up? If one slips, you're gone. And he used to tell me that fear is a liar. He used to say he always had a hard time getting on the tightrope when he was fearful. But once he overcame and punched through the veil of the fear, he was able to uh, get out of that emotion and use logic and think about wind and balance and and walking across point A to get to point B for survival. So, you know, everything in our lives we is a lesson or something that we can learn. And what I learned from Nick Walenda is you can survive any challenging situation if you can somehow overcome your fear. But you're right, Mark. Fear is a trigger point for so many people who have been traumatized And it's what keeps them in the darkness and from growing and from moving forward. So we have to be compassionate when it comes to fear. But at the same time, personally, we have to look for methodologies um, to overcome that fear. You know how when we're getting ready to do something and we worry about all the worst things that could happen and and then we we don't do that thing, right, because we're too worried. Or sometimes we do do it. And we find out that all the things we were fearful of never happened. So a lot of times these fears are only in our our heads. And I say this about fear. Believe in yourself. Believe that you can overcome the fear. And believe that your life or whatever it is that you're challenged with is a process. When you get to the other side, you're going to look back and you're going to say, my fear kept me alive, but overcoming my fear made me successful. I don't want to just live with fear. I want to live with success. So face your fears, realize it's a process, and it's okay to be fearful. Just don't let it get to the point to where you don't live your life the way you know that you should be living it. The hardest phone, That's heavy stuff, man. It is heavy stuff. The hardest phone call I've ever made in my life was the first one that started to be on the journey of trauma recovery. Picking up the phone and asking for help. That took a boatload of courage. And it's also the obstacle that keeps a lot of people from ever asking for help. Because the what you're losing is that sense of security of I'm fine, I've got this, I'm fine, I've got this, which is all (laughs) ego, you know? It's like, I'm strong, I'm independent, I can do this myself. No, you fucking can't. (laughs) No, you You can't. You know, I made that call too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Letting go of that ego so that you can pick up the phone and say, yeah, I need help. This is out of control. They, they, They told me. We can't fix your marriage and save that. 
but we can save you. And that person on the other end of that trauma line, because I was thinking about crossing over the median and, and hitting another car head on or getting back to my house and, and, and ending all of this. Those words right there, we can save you. Whoever that person was, God bless her, because she she turned it around. And then within a few days, I was in my one-on-one cognitive behavioral therapy recovery. And then the rest is history. And 11 months later, I saved my marriage that was in the middle of a major divorce. It was me who initiated it. I didn't want to be part of that anymore. And I was willing to throw all that away because of ego. When I finally realized that what one of my best friends told me, she said to me, John, Love overcomes everything. So what does that mean? Think about it. Self-love, if you love yourself, and I'm not saying in an arrogant, narcissistic way. No, of course not. If you truly appreciate who you are, then you'll appreciate those around you. And after 11 months, my wife saw a huge change in me, and she called off the divorce, and my marriage was saved. It was awesome. One of the coolest things I've ever accomplished. This is the power of conversations like this, John. You just helped me come to a realization and and put something together that I've been pondering for probably 15 years. Uh, I heard somebody say once, I am the problem. I am the solution in regards to relationships. Mm -hmm. And I finally just put that together. Um, Congratulations, when, man. You're when, on it, brother. When uh, relationships do not work out, I think the, the biggest reason for divorce is that we're always pointing the finger and saying, you have to change. You have to change to the other person. You do this and you do that. And we externalize the shortcomings of the relationship instead of taking a breath and going, hang on, what can I do better? How can I be a better person? What am I contributing to the shit soup here that is our, our, our toxic marriage? And that takes courage. It takes courage to look inside and to first ask, what can I do better? Without being gaslit or uh, end up in codependency, anything like that. I mean, sometimes there is no fixing it, and that's, that's fine. If there's no fixing it, then get the hell out and you're done. But you, you'll never know if you if you don't look into the mirror first, because I am the problem, I am the solution. Sometimes the solution is to leave, and that's fine. But not always. Sometimes the solution is, oh, I am blaming my own internal dialogue on the other person. I'm, I'm, when I'm saying, well, you're not giving me enough attention, well, maybe I am too needy of attention. Why do I need so much damn attention? You're not giving me enough love. What? Wait a second. Why am I not feeling enough love? You know, if if you if you flip it around, we have to take responsibility ourselves first, and from that place, then um, you know. All I'm saying is, there's a lot of finger pointing in uh, in divorces, and the finger pointing is never at ourselves, and that's that's the, no. You're, that's the problem. You're, you're absolutely correct, Mark. There's no, those are all truthful, honest statements because we are the problem and we are the solution. And I, well, part of the, the card that I got at the end of these 11 months, the 
before we really got back together was, I have seen a change in you. There were other sentences in the card, but that one stuck out the most. And for the first time in my life, I guess I was 55, 56 years old. For the first time in my life, I actually felt like I had earned something um, through the art of love. And, and not the, the love that sometimes is embraced by the world. It was a deeper, deeper kind of love. And which leads me to the mirror. You mentioned the mirror, right? So part of my traumatic brain injury symptomology was chronic insomnia. I'd wake up at all hours, turn on all the lights in the house and walk around and just be in a panic frame of mind. And I remember when I was in my therapy, my, my therapist said, you know, John, the next time that happens, rather than turn on all the lights, she goes, just do, do me a favor. Turn on one light. Go into your bathroom where you have a big mirror, right? And I said, yeah. She says, turn on the light and look at that person in the mirror and tell that person with all of your heart how much you love them. So I'm thinking in my mind, this therapist is nuts. I'm not going to do that. But you know what I did that night, one o'clock in the morning, one thirty, whatever it was, I get up like I'd been getting up for five years, went right to the bathroom, turned on the light, walked in, looked at myself in the mirror, looked around to see if there was anybody watching me. And I said, love you. I felt so weird. <laughs> Went back to bed much as I could. And, and it was weird because I had never said that to myself. But here's what started to happen, man. A couple days later, I'm up walking there. Hey, man, I love you. And this went on for three or four weeks. Then I come in and go, hey, brother, you are the coolest guy in the world. I love you, John. And I'm telling you, Mark, something changed in my mind. I started to believe it. I started to say to myself, you're awesome, man. There's something going on here. You're a cool dude. And it started to change inside that we talked about the self-love. Then it got into conversations. And I'm not nuts. I forgive you, too. Remember that thing you did 30 years ago to so-and-so or that guy that did that to you five years ago? Forgive yourself and forgive him. I got into this forgiveness thing in the mirror. Those two components, self-love and self-forgiveness, the love of others and the forgiveness of others for others, is what laid the foundation for me personally to come back to the land of authenticity. I love that counselor. She's not a nutcase. She taught me one of the most valuable exercises ever. The exercise of self-love and self-forgiveness and actually believing it. Embrace the woo-woo, as I often say. Things that um, uh, people yeah. can easily poo-poo. They poo-poo the woo-woo, but uh, when they should be embracing it. You know, uh, if it's feels uncomfortable, well, it's probably because it's stretching you. And 
stretching is growing. So if it doesn't feel uncomfortable, if it if it's too easy, it's probably not stretching you and growing you. You know, stretching hurts. Stretching's difficult. So it's uh, I encourage people to to try these things and not just blow them off or scoff or think it's just silly silliness and woo woo. It's um, it's it's important stuff that works. And what's the harm in trying? And again, that brings us back to ego. <laughs> Being able to let go of the ego is uh, is what you need to be able to do to even try something like that. To look in the mirror and say, "You're awesome," but it works. It's it's helpful stuff. It is, and and one of the parts of my recovery for the brain was to p- pick up a musical instrument. So I picked up a guitar, and I, I took a basic guitar class. And I'm by no way Eddie Van Halen or any of that, right? <laughs> I mean, I can play, but I'm not like that. But but I met this Vietnam veteran in this class. He was an older guy, had his hair in a ponytail. And one day I wore a shirt that said something like veteran. And he walked up to me and he goes, hey, you're a veteran, huh? And I said, yeah. He goes, I am too. And you wouldn't know it. He was a Vietnam veteran. And so we became really good friends and we would play guitar. We got together. Um one of my best buddies I've ever had. We talked army stuff. We talked addiction stuff. We talked trauma stuff. And he, in our conversation, I wrote this down. You made me think of this. He came up with this philosophy and he called it the cost of living. Right. And see, I'm a quick study. I I pick things up. And he said, the cost of living is how much are you willing to sacrifice emotionally to overcome your pain. Mm. That's the cost of living. And this person and I have had so many, like this conversation, Mark, this is an awesome conversation. We have had so many good conversations about stuff like this and how to be complete and how to be better and how to improve and how to be good to ourselves, which you just mentioned and how to be good to others, and how to just be a better human being. How can we lead by example as men and show other men that it's okay to wear your emotions on your sleeve as long as you're thinking about it? It's okay to be vulnerable. All men know how to defend themselves. And the last resort is to pull a sword, not first, the last resort. We can do that. We can fight. But why not try logic and reason first to help ourselves and others? That's the whole poetic human is that as men, we need to identify with our hearts, which you mentioned earlier. And then we, we need to use our freedom, the freedom and the power of the mind to move things in a positive direction. And not only will it be better for ourselves and not just for ourselves, but it'll be better for anybody who's around us. And Mark, you know, this man, it works. So I'm with you. Embrace the woo woo. (laughs) Don't poo poo it. So you taught me something. There you go. Use that. Don't poo poo the woo woo. (laughs) Don't poo poo the woo woo. Because let me tell you, I'm living proof and you are too, that components of that woo-woo 
actually work. Tell me yeah. a little bit about the work that you do, uh, the speaking, and it's uh, do, you, do you do trauma coaching as well? I don't. I'm not a certified coach or anything. I'm just a, a, a motivator and an inspirer. Um, I'm working on another TED Talk. Uh, haven't done one yet, another one. I'm always writing something. But uh, one of the talks that I discuss is the, the male leadership crisis and the second law of thermodynamics. I've also got another talk, uh, Love Doesn't Hurt, It Heals. You remember the Aerosmiths or the, who was that song? Love um, Hurts. Nazareth. Yeah, that's Love there we go. Love Hurts. I, I got to talk about that. And then I got to talk about removing the blindfold. So I've got three talks, and they all have to do with uh, leadership and, and, and recovery from trauma and, and legitimate ways th- that worked for me. And, you know, you can walk in the self-help section in any bookstore or go online, and there's thousands of books, and they're all notable. You know, there's benefits to all of those books. And one of the things that we find ourselves in in self-help is what's really going to work for us. You know, we get a book. It's all great. We learn it. Pardon we me. do some of the things, and then we mess up. We say, ah, oh, that doesn't work. You know, and we keep going on this journey, and and I'm just, I'm being facetious here, but we become addicted to self help, right? Well, I and I, always, I, I find that uh, the people that are addicted to the victim mentality, they go out of their way to take every uh, self help course and read every self help book for no other reason than to say it doesn't work. <laughs> it's so true. No, man, it's so true. So I always say with people, well, well, what really works? And I say to them, what works is what works for you. If you're getting better and you're improving your situation and you're feeling better and the people around you are feeling better and you're really getting somewhere, then that's what works. I have a plan, but that's what worked for me. And all that it really is is different components of other people's wisdom just put into a process that worked for me. Um, so those three talks primarily, removing the blindfold, which is very impactful, uh, has to do with what we've been talking about, Mark, about the blindfold being the ego. And as long as we're wearing blindfolds and people ask us questions in a room where nobody can see, are we going to be honest and raise our hands or not? And, and once you've removed these blindfolds, it doesn't matter if people see you raise your hand or not. You've let the ego slide away. You become vulnerable. Uh, the love hurts has to do with the recovery of my marriage and my beliefs about love backed up on with science and real life experiences of people. And then uh, the poetic human and the male leadership crisis with the entropic nature of the universe, the second law of thermodynamics is gives a background on why uh, men are where they're at and, and, and kind of a, a way that we can move forward with that. There's a few different has, uh, definitions yeah. of entropy. When you use uh, entropy as a term, what does it mean to you and how does it apply? Entropy is a natural state that the universe finds itself in. And it's really, it's, 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 it's degradation of energy and it's, it's, it's the universe is in a constant state of entropy according to the second law of thermodynamics. You know, so there's always chaos and conflict and these entropic uh, human forces like hate and ego and greed, and malice. There's always these entropic forces in humanity. But then there's the 
growth forces in humanity. We've talked about a couple of them, three or four of them, really. Love and forgiveness and and um, acceptance, empathy, compassion, these good forces, which are constantly you know, opposed to the, the entropic forces. And so entropy is just degradation, probably a long answer to a short question, but it really is just means degradation could be conflict and chaos, but there's ways that we can, I don't even like the word combat that there's a way that we can overcome that. And, and it's through the growth forces of each and every, each and every individual has the, um, the freedom and the liberty um, to explore those deeper. And it's tough. You've already said it takes great courage. It's not easy. None of this is easy. If people want to get a hold of you, John, you're on LinkedIn. Uh, what's your website address? The website is John, J-O-H-N-T, Crotech, K-R-O-T-E-C dot com. And then uh, we're working on a couple of other projects. I'm getting ready to, to launch a um, a writing course primarily for men but anybody can join it and it's called heart scribes it's a very simple six-week course also working on a leadership project i've uh, got a couple of podcasts that are out there uh, straight out of combat radio and the well podcast which is women's expressions on leadership learning and liberty to try to gather tips from women who are in leadership positions that can help us men to be better men uh, but i'm constantly doing something because all I want to do Mark from here on out is affect. I want to self-improve constantly and I want to affect people in a positive way and not be uh, the person that was full of ego and full of fear and all these dark things uh, before. How would you say before I, before I let all that go, before I found the light, you can call me too on my cell phone. Um, I'm always erasing the messages, but it's 941. It's in the U.S., 941-400-7333, My email address is john, J-O-H-N, at greenzonehero.com. My personal email is J-T Crotech. Actually, I'm sorry, there's no T. It's J Crotech 59 at gmail john thanks accessible thanks for making the time today brother appreciate it and thank you for your service and your continued service well mark thank you and i appreciate you and i just want you to know that the thing this show and the the work that you've done with your own organization uh if you don't know it already i can tell you that it's helped lives in in a tremendous way and you are a piece of that puzzle and i'm not just blowing smoke that makes this world a much better place so keep doing what you're doing and I appreciate you as well and look forward to our next conversation. 100%. John, please stay in the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their family. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, Please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.